Well, good morning, friends. Good morning. Let's uh, let's get started. Good morning. So it's a great joy to be able to welcome uh, my professor and friend, the Reverend Dr. Robert McSwain. Uh, Rob has taught at Swanee since 2009, I think, um, and was I had the privilege of having uh, Professor McSwain as my thesis advisor, and I joked upstairs to the um, to the Anthony's that uh, you've never seen a thesis so marked up with red ink after Rob got his hands on it. Uh, I wrote my thesis on, on Rowan Williams and, and Professor McSwain was my advisor because he looks after, among other things, you know, teaching theology, philosophy, contemporary Anglican figures in theology. Uh, so it was a natural fit and a real gift for me. Um, after I was at Emory for my Master of Divinity, I did a Master of Sacred Theology at Swanee. And, um, and, and Rob was my, my thesis advisor, which I wrote, as you all know and have read, a thesis on uh, the Catholic humanism of Rowan Williams. So um, when I discovered that, that Rob was in town this week for a retreat with the Oratory of the Good Shepherd, staying at the House of the Redeemer, um, I, I quickly said, I'm not just going to lunch with you, teach the forum and preach. And, gracious soul that he is, uh, has agreed to do just that. So let us welcome Professor McSwain. And Rob has a forthcoming book on the saints. Um, there is a, a priest and theologian called Austin Ferrer of the 20th century that you'll hear probably a little bit about in this, this video uh, that Rob uh, I, I knew about Austin Farrer, but uh, Rob took me deeper into his work, and, and he, he's become a real theological hero of mine. So far, uh, uh, my, my second boy, Ezra, his middle name is Austin, named after uh, Austin, Austin Farrer, and you know who Rowan Thompson is named after. Um, so uh, Austin Farrer says that maybe the evidence for God is the life of the saint. And Professor McSwain has a, a, a Templeton grant and has been working on studying the lives of the saints as evidence for God. And we're gonna talk a bit about that. But we start with this video. Is it possible to shift the screen a little bit? Sort of. We, did, we, we had an elevator malfunction with our huge TV this morning, apparently. Uh, so you might have to kind of reposition yourself to see it. Uh, it's, it's not so long, it's four minutes. <laughs> So dim the lights, get your popcorn ready. I don't think that we can prove the existence of God, but I do think that there are reasons to believe. So the question is, what are those reasons and are they good ones? That's the Reverend Dr. Robert McSwain, Associate Professor of Theology at the University of the South. Dr. McSwain is asking, could a transformed human life be the best evidence for God? The question of evidence for God is ambiguous and hard to agree on. That's why Dr. McSwain is writing a book that explores an interesting but neglected argument for the divine. There's the cosmological argument that looks at the existence of the entire universe or cosmos. There's the teleological argument that looks at order or apparent design. There's the moral argument, which says we seem to have a sense of 
moral obligation. And there are also arguments based in human nature. People look at our capacity for reason and even consciousness. What's unusual about what I call the hegeological argument or the argument from human holiness is that it doesn't look at things that are very big or pervasive or abstract, but something very concrete. For example, a person that we might actually know or come in contact with. I first really grasped this through the work of Austin Farrer, who says explicitly that the saint is our evidence. The traditional definition of a saint is someone who has already died, and that's not really what I mean. I mean people who are living at a higher level of holiness and love and altruism. So living saints. To me, it's both uh, an exciting discovery on one hand and a mystery on the other. Like, why haven't more people followed up on this? Q Lister, who is the man that Austin Farrer thought was a saint as a priest in poor urban neighborhoods. Somebody says that to be with him was to be challenged at the deepest level of thought and action, and all the more sharply because this effect was entirely unconscious. He was just himself, but being himself, he called you in question. But even within this new way of looking at humans as evidence of God, there are nuances. I think there are three versions, what I call the uh, propositional, the perceptual, and the performative. The propositional argument is that there are human lives that are so altruistic, so much lived for others, that the best explanation for these lives is that they somehow speak of God. But other people say, when I'm in this person's presence, I feel... God. It's just a direct religious experience. John Meacham says that people who were in John Lewis's life had an ambient sense of, of divine presence. The performative uh, is even more interesting in the sense that it says, no, it's that over the whole course of this person's life, they've somehow lived out the evidence for God. It would be easier for us if we could just say, you know, here's the argument for God's existence, accept it or not. But what Rowan Williams suggests is that God doesn't give us arguments. God gives us lives, that that's how God makes himself real is through other human lives. And of course, that then presents us the challenge to ourselves become the kind of life that speaks of God to others. So what is it exactly about these unique lives that gets our attention? While they may make us feel uncomfortable, we still feel that somehow in them we're seeing how humans should be. In his forthcoming book, The Saint is Our Evidence, Dr. McSwain digs into this fascinating premise, including questions he has yet to fully resolve, like how many of these saints are among us? I think it's a really interesting question. It's got to be a significant enough number that most of us have at least had an indirect encounter, but it also has to be small enough for them to be still very rare and precious. So we give the floor over to you. 
And uh, what we're going to do uh, after Professor McSwain has some commentary on where the work is at or whatever he wants to share with us, um, I'll ask a couple of questions and also we'll turn it over to you all for some Q&A. Well, first of all, let me just say, I'd hate to say that your rector is a liar, uh, the first thing I say, but I didn't have to do a lot of marking up of his thesis. It was beautifully written uh, and very mature, excellent piece of work, but uh, he's just being self-effacing and modest. Um, but secondly, it's wonderful to be here with you and, and I appreciate the invitation. So I do teach theology at Sewanee uh, and theologians don't, have to prove the existence of God. We, we assume God exists. That's, that's kind of a professional uh, privilege that theologians just assume God exists. Um, and uh, as an Episcopal theologian, I have other parameters that I work with. I assume that God has revealed God's self in scripture, in the tradition of the church. And in particular, the Nicene Creed is the framework of which my theology takes its, its, um, its bearings. But I'm very interested in this philosophical question of the existence of God. Uh, and I'm very interested in these arguments for God's existence. And arguments for God's existence have been debated literally for thousands of years. And they, there was a, a period of about three or 400 years where almost all philosophers and theologians thought that they weren't any good, that there were no good arguments for God's existence. And if there were any good ones, you shouldn't use them anyway, because somehow that's inappropriate. So both theologians and philosophers were very critical of this whole project of what's sometimes called natural theology, arguing for God's existence. But that's changed a lot over the last 50 or 60 years. And, and now, now there's a great deal of interest, professional philosophical interest in these arguments. But also in the field of religious studies and church history, there's been this incredible amount of interest in saints. Now there's always been interest in saints within the traditional, and I, I, I'm, I can tell that you laughed when they did the little X's across the eyes yeah. uh, of, of the saints. But you know, we're very familiar with the saints of the church, and that has always been a topic of great interest among church historians. But over the last 50 years, it's, it's widened out much more broadly. And there's just this incredible outpouring of interesting scholarship on saints. But these two areas of discourse have never really intersected. They've never come together. And that, those five words from Austin Farrer, the saint is our evidence, I think that's five words, the saint is, yeah, five words. Five words from Austin Farrer, the saint is our evidence, struck me as a bridge that brought these two discourses together, this whole question of arguments for God's existence and this interest in saints and holiness. And so that is, that is what I've tried to do with this book, is to build a bridge using Farrer's phrase and to, to somehow ask, as Farrer used to say to his Oxford undergraduates, what is the best evidence for God? And you know he knew all those classical arguments, but what he said to his students is, let me tell you about this guy I knew. And he sometimes spoke about him anonymously. He sometimes mentioned him by name. We know his name was Hugh Lister. He was a fascinating priest and uh, union labor organizer, which priests weren't supposed to do in England in the 1940s. He then, uh, when World War II started, he, he joined the army as a combatant officer, which priests also weren't supposed to do. Um, and he died at a young age on a battlefield on the 9th of September, 1944. Uh, and Farrer found his life so compelling that he would say to his students, such a life is evidence for God. Now, 
as fascinating of a claim as that is, it's not entirely clear that he's right. And so one of the things I've tried to do is explore what I actually think of that. And as the video says, I gradually realized that there were three distinct versions of the claim. That for some people, they really focused on sainthood as altruism. That is lives of extraordinary self-sacrifice. And the argument there is that these lives are so self-sacrificial, they are so radically altruistic, that we would be inclined to say they don't make sense unless there is some broader context which makes them make sense. Um, and so that's what I call the, the propositional. The perceptual just says there are some people who seem to have some kind of, for lack of a better word, luminous aura. They just, they're radiant. They glow, they shine. And when we're in their presence, we just think, we just feel that we are somehow also in the presence of God. And that's what I call the, the perceptual. The performative is a bit more complicated because what it says is, well, these aren't necessarily extraordinarily altruistic and they're not necessarily luminous sources of religious experience. But somehow over the whole course of their life, they have borne witness to the reality of God. And I call that the performative because it requires, it requires a body of work. You can't say someone's a great actor on the basis of just one performance. There has to be a body of work and consistency. So that's kind of the status of the book. It's, it's in the hands of a publisher. They haven't told me if they're going to publish it yet. Um, I'm waiting to hear back. but. Um, uh, hopefully we'll have good news soon. So that's a quick sketch, and I'd be glad to hear any questions that, uh, yeah. that Zach may have. Let me see my notes. Um, and then be thinking of your own questions as well. You know, one of the things that we've been working on all fall in our forum is looking at discipleship. Um, so I wonder, you know, the, the saint and the disciple, you know, are we all called to be saints? Mm. Are the saints the, you know, have you discovered how many there are in the world? As your video asks, um, you know, I want to be one too kind of idea. You know, how do we, how do we make sense of that? Yeah. Is it a perfect person? Mm. You know, what, what is the saint and are we called to be one? Great questions. And I, we could spend hours talking about all of them. Um, so let me just say quickly, I'm a Christian, and for me, sainthood is uh, a participation in the life of Christ that all Christians are called to imitate. But one of the interesting things that's occurred over the last 50 years, the term saint is now used interreligiously. We used to not talk about a Buddhist saint or a Hindu saint or a Jewish saint, um, but that term has now been defined in a way that allows us to look at holiness in other religions. So for me, the answer is yes. I think disciplehood and sainthood are very closely connected. But for the purpose of the book, I don't want to limit it to, to the Christian saints. And I think that's actually an advantage. If it's an argument for God's existence, then there should be holy evidence of God everywhere. But um, an example of the discipleship thing, um, when I was working on the chapter on altruism, somebody called me and asked me to do them a favor. It was a very inconvenient thing. Uh, and I was inclined to say no. And then I thought, I'm writing a chapter on altruism. <laughs> and if I don't fulfill this request, you know, there's going to be a dissonance for me for this project. And so the, I, I did find myself as it were forced by the research I was doing to try to be consistent with the argument as I understood it. So I think that's an example of how maybe engagement with holy lives can challenge us to be holy too. 
Um, and, um, and yes, I do think we're all called to be saints, but what that means will vary from person to person. There's not a single standard of sainthood to which we all must fit. It's a famous quote from Thomas Merton. He says, for me, he says, to be a saint is to be myself. But that's a lot harder than it sounds, right? Because we're all called to be ourselves, but we often, in a paradoxical way, fail to fulfill who we are called to be. So it's not like he's getting us off the hook. He's not saying, however the way you are right now is just fine and saintly. It's you must determine, you must discern what God is calling you to do and your particular path to sainthood will be found in that call. But that doesn't mean that everyone looks exactly the same. And no, saints aren't perfect. Saints are flawed. Um, saints are fascinating, um, but they are seeking as best they can to be themselves. I was struck in the video uh, that Austin Farrer says that when the priest in London, who he's bumped into as being a holy person, says that the ways in which he has become himself becomes what a challenge, mm. a challenge yes. to others. Yes. Um, say more about that. Yeah. So, I mean, this is the fascinating thing about saints is that they are, well, there's a famous quote from, from, the, from Rudolf Otto, who was a German um, philosopher and theologian. And his definition of the holy was something that is uh, both mysterious and fascinating, uh, that it, it is a fascinating mystery. Uh, and it often creates awe. And so this is what saints sometimes do. Saints are not always easy to be around. Uh, saints can be quite difficult, partly because they uh, are often very truthful. So saints say what they think uh, and, and they expect us to do the same thing. So most of us are, you know, we, we, we tend to make little compromises uh, to kind of get by and get through and saints don't do that, right? So I think that saints um, uh, challenge us by the purity of their lives. Um, they're often quite radical in the way they live. They often live very simply. Um, they often are, are committed to great causes um, and follow them through. So, you know, an interesting question is who are the saints among us? And, you know, many names that people mention in this context are people like Mother Teresa and Dorothy Day, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, you know, people who have lived radical lives that both impress us but challenge us at the same time. Share with us a couple of, um, a couple of your favorite saints or, you know, <laughs> saints that have intrigued you or perhaps a story that you learned about in your research that has stayed with you? Oh, gosh. Um, so I think that every time I talk about this project, people's eyes tend to light up. And, and somebody says, I know somebody like that, or, or I have a saint in my life. Um, and so those are the sorts of saints that I think are in some ways most important. They're not the Mother Teresas or the, uh, the Dietrich Bonhoeffers or the Dorothy Days. Those are the fairly um, radical and, and not so numerous. So one of the questions that I am asked in the video is how many saints are among us? And I think that the number varies according to the type of saint you're talking about. Um, so I'm trying to answer your question, but to give it some more context, I guess I would say I can think of two or three people in my life who have performed this function for me. Um, and the way that Rowan Williams might put it is that there are some lives that 
make belief in God possible for us. There are some lives that, um, that make God credible. And his example of that uh, was a young Dutch Jewish woman named Eddie Hillisom, um, who I'd never heard about until I read William's discussion of her. And um, she was a secular Jew, what, what they called an assimilated Jew in, in, um, in, uh, the Ho in Holland, in the Netherlands. That is to say, she wasn't practicing or, or, or self-consciously Jewish in her life. But of course, that didn't matter to the Nazis. All that matters is that she was Jewish. So as she began to realize that her life was very likely going to end uh, prematurely and violently, she had this religious conversion experience um, and wrote down these letters and diaries that weren't published until about 40 years after her death, um, in which she left a legacy of her discovery of God in the midst of all this horror. And she died in Auschwitz uh, at the age of 29. But it's from her that Williams takes this phrase that some people are called to make God credible. Uh, some people's lives are called upon to make God credible. Um, so I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. I mean, there, there are other, you know, more well-known saints I could talk about like St. Francis, but I don't want to keep talking. <laughs> yeah, the, and the, to, take, to make God credible through the life of the saint, Williams also says, what, to take responsibility for God yes. is, this, is this calling of the saint. My, uh, one of my teachers at, in, in high school was a woman called Susan Stein. Uh, and I, I was at Princeton Day School and Susan taught me Shakespeare and Dostoevsky and other amazing pieces of literature. But in the last decade, I think, Susan uh, was at a yard sale in New Jersey in Princeton and she found these diaries of Eddie Hillison. Mm. And she has, she has an acting background. Mm. So she's turned these journals into a, a play mm. called Eddie oh. um, that took her to um, you know, Lambeth Palace and, and Rowan Williams oh, and right. sort of performing uh, this, this play, which is just a fascinating uh, thing that happened in Susan's life. And she reached out to me, have you ever heard of Eddie Hillison? And I said, I actually have, uh, you know, th thanks, to this, thanks to this work. I wonder if we have questions from the congregation. Richard. Good morning. Good morning. I'm Richard Marks, thank you. Thank you, Richard. Thank you for being with us. Um, what I'm hearing as you're speaking is that you're rather democratizing hmm. saints because we know from the Catholic tradition, the first saints were always canonized by the Pope. And then we have lesser feasts and fasts, which we read commemorations of saints every morning in the daily office. So what does it mean to democratize hmm. that we all, how do we pick? How do we know who's, because you said you could sort of be a flawed saint. We know they're all flawed, but how do we pick yeah. our own canon of saints? Yeah. Great question, thank you. So um, the question is, am I, am I democratizing the saints? Um, I think the answer is yes and no. And, and just a little bit, a uh, little uh, slight correction. The initial saints uh, of the early church were simply uh, recognized by acclamation. It was only later that it became a more formalized process. And so, yes, currently in the Roman Catholic Church, to be a saint requires two criteria. You have to be dead and you have to be canonized. Uh, and to be canonized is a long, complicated process, and it culminates with only the pope is able to make that call. So I am extending the concept of saint beyond the canonized saints very clearly, definitely, yes. 
But I still think, and this is an interesting phrase from Farrer that I talk about. So one of the chapters of the book is another Farrer quote, where he says, the evidence of saint is incorrigibly aristocratic, by which he means there is still something quite elite and distinct about these lives, that they're not, it's not everybody that we might wanna call a saint. So it, it is a more democratic or egalitarian concept than um, the canonization uh, process, but it's still saying this is still quite a rarefied category that we don't want to uh, allocate too indiscriminately. And um, I think I'll get some pushback on that because right now there is such a great emphasis on egalitarianism and democracy in, in, you know, and quite rightly so in our society that anything that says, well, some people actually are higher <laughs> um, is, is, I think there's gonna be some pushback on that actually. So it's a wonderful question and thank you for asking it. But at least as I understand it, there is still something about these saints that is, um, uh, that is elite in regard to their spiritual and moral uh, accomplishments. That's a question here. <laughs> I'm just thinking about what you just said. And I was thinking, well, maybe it's actually saintly acts. Like you're not always a saint, <laughs> mm -hmm. but I see people from time to time do things that I think that is such a wonderful, loving, kind thing to do. Mm that it's a saintly act. And to me, that often says, wow, you know, that's really godlike. What that person just did is godlike. Hmm. And that has to come from someplace because sometimes they had to sacrifice or they had to give something or do something that really required a tremendous amount from them. Yes. So the saintly act. Yes, thank you. So that's something I actually talk about as well because the first definition, the, the, the propositional version, which focuses on altruism, and altruism, of course, is doing things for others, um, could basically say, you know, what the sainthood consists of is, are these individual acts. Whereas the performative version actually requires a whole lifetime. So you can't quite, you know, divide it up into a, a, a um, um, you know, a, a simply a discrete set of acts, but a whole life has to bear witness. So maybe that's kind of like an act of God that we're seeing God through how that person is doing this saintly thing. Yes. So another, so back to the Roman Catholic process, it still requires a miracle. Uh, for, for the Pope to canonize you, there have to be two confirmed miracles after your death. Now what that means is somebody says, I prayed to Mother Teresa, not to, sorry, correct. Roman Catholics do not pray to saints. I asked Mother Teresa for her prayer. We often think of them as praying to saints, but technically they don't. I asked Mother Teresa for her prayers and I was healed. And a, a set of doctors has to say, this healing is medically inexplicable. We're not saying it's a miracle, but we're saying we can't explain it. And the Pope says, good enough for me, uh, it's a miracle. Now, for people are often fascinated in the traditional saint lives with their miracles. There are so many stories, what they call the hagiographies. All these miracles uh, are attributed to saints. And for many people, that's what makes a saint. Um, in some ways, well, I wanna, I wanna withdraw from that in some ways, but what I hear you saying is that some lives might be miraculous or some, in other words, the miraculous thing is not necessarily um, you know, turning water into wine, but maybe living among lepers um, and, and giving your life 
And, and that's, that's an example of what many people would say is an irrational thing to do unless there is some broader context that gives it meaning. Thank you for that. Um, so if you're going to play this out a little bit, would I feel like you might end up going backwards and maybe looking for saints in the beginning, sort of the way they do with the Dalai Lama. Like, you know, you go into find a smaller a, a child mm, mm. and they look for certain aspects of their being that mm -hmm. could be saintly. Mm -hmm. So would I don't, could you talk about like going backwards in a life and starting at the beginning? Yeah, I mean, so there is a psychology at work here and, and there are what we might call saintly personalities. <clears throat> that is to say, there are people who from early childhood seem quite concerned about others and so forth. And one thing I'm very interested in, I'm looking at the time, if that clock is right, then we, uh, we yeah, we, we, yeah. We, this is, this is, we'll have to end with this. Um, one of the things that hasn't come up yet in the conversation is, is I think there are secular saints. I think there are people who um, may not be motivated by religious belief, but whose whole life is dedicated to helping others. And, and as, a, as a Christian, I would say that life is bearing witness to the reality of God, even if they don't think it is. Um, so I do think that there are some individuals who may not be motivated by religion, but who do have uh, some quite remarkable um, uh, interior compulsion to help people. And, you know, we could explain that psychologically, but I think God is at work behind that. And I think that might be the note on which. Yeah, that's great. We need uh, Professor McSwain to go preach upstairs. So, uh, <laughs>